We're going to get right into the study this morning. So if you'd open up to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, if you need a Bible, these folks walking down the aisles will give you one. Just raise your hand. They'll give you a Bible. Matthew chapter 7. And uh, this, this is one of the, uh, the verses that you often hear quoted in the world. If you've ever had an argument with someone, you've heard them say, judge not lest ye be judged. Has anyone ever heard that or is it just me? Yeah. So we're going to take a look at it this morning. Uh, it's an interesting passage of scripture. I actually, on, um, on Tuesday night at the school board meeting, I, I heard it, uh, there were, it was a, a packed crowd, standing room only, both in the hallway and in the foyer. Um, I got there early to get a seat and then realized as a gentleman, I had to give up my seat, which I did. I found a very nice railing to lean on. And as a gentleman, I realized I had to give up the railing. I soon found myself out in the foyer with everyone else. I, they were taking pictures, and I, and I I would they were taking pictures of me, a councilman there. So I just figured I'd go home and watch it on the television. But while I was there, I heard this verse quoted twice by two of the speakers: "Judge not, lest you be judged." Uh, they were dealing with a couple of big issues at the school board level. One was um, the um, continuation school. Uh, it is a difficult decision. They're trying to find out a remedy for. And then the other one was uh, the social studies curriculum. Uh, SB 48 requires that uh, LGBTQ um, history be taught. And uh, so there was a suggested curriculum from the state, whether that would be part of the CVUSD policy to be including the curriculum, which would second grade, fourth grade, and on and on. So um, well over 50 speakers attended. It was contentious. Uh, I'd, I'd say of the 50 speakers, 10 were really, really solid. Uh, calming effect, profound insights. Um, some were okay. A lot of people were nervous. Some were inciting riot. Um, the crowd was boisterous. When when I was at home, I didn't have a chance to hear the the hissing and the booing because they didn't have a speaker on the audience that I heard when I was there. So I had kind of a, a interesting perspective. Um, and then I, I contrast that with yesterday. I went to a funeral. I was uh, officiated a memorial service for a veteran. I'd never met him. He was the step, stepfather of a member of our congregation. He asked that I officiate, and I did. He had served the United States Navy, and it was a small gathering. And I was supposed to be there at 10, and I, I stopped to get coffee. I knew I'd make it there with 10 minutes to spare. And as I pulled into Ventura, massive crowds of protesters coming out. Um, the, the park was filled. I was at the stop sign. I got to the memorial service exactly at 10. And uh, I mean, Ventura was just aflame with people marching. Uh, peaceful protest for the most part. I, I didn't stay to see it. But I remember at the conclusion of the memorial service that he had a color guard uh, and they, they did a, a three volley salute, five guys with M1s, blanks. And one of the people that attended the memorial service leaned over and whispered and says, I'm afraid that this might cause issues because we were blocking half away from the rioters and you hear gunshots. You're like, it was all right. Nothing happened. And on the drive back, the crowds had gotten larger and here I am in a suit and uh, thank God I didn't have any bumper stickers or anything. Just, how you doing? Good to see you, you know? And and they were carrying signs, and, and as you all know, my, my position on life, and, and folks were carrying signs for Planned Parenthood. Could you imagine, in a suit, after a memorial service, 
I decide to get out and confront the crowd and stand for life. I probably wouldn't be here today. No, it was a peaceful gathering, but uh, it, it was one of those things where you looked at it and you realized, I'm not going to be very effective here. I think I'm going to go home. And I did. And I had a lovely, lovely Saturday. All that ties in because um, we were contending in our community for issues. And, and half of the room said, this is right. And half the room said, no, this is right. And that's wrong. And they said, no, this is right. And that's wrong. And not a small contention arose. And here we are in our country where we watch the inaugural, or it's one of the most watched inaugural addresses in the history of our country, if you include, as I understand, internet. And then the following day, you see protesters marching and uh, president wins by electoral college vote, but loses in the popular election. And uh, we're watching here in our own community these, these issues. We're looking at four years of struggle, quite frankly. And we're going to hear this verse a lot. Judge not, lest ye be judged. So we better understand the passage. And, and then as you heard me allude a couple weeks back, I said that I was going to give a formal apology today. I, I thought the room would be a little more crowded than it was. First service, I was kind of disappointed. I thought people would be excited to get some blood. I'm kidding. It's a joke. But you'll see it in the course of our study this morning. Um, but what I'm going to do first is we're going to study the text, and then I'll get into some illustrations and the apology. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to begin Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Remember, this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He's giving it to disciples, not to the world. He's giving it to people who are followers of Christ. We've gone through the Beatitudes, we've gone through salt, light, we've gone through all kinds of pictures, and now we're coming to a place where Jesus is addressing them now that he's equipped them. He's going to tell them how to step into the world and make a difference, to be a city on a hill, a polis, a governing structure that, that transforms culture. It's a, it's a counterculture, not a subculture, and how, how we're to be salt, this, this salary, this, this currency in a, in a culture to transform the culture. And he knows that there's going to be conflict. He says, you're going to be persecuted and reviled for my namesake. Great is your reward in heaven. And the, the good works you do, so he's saying there's good and there's evil, so he's judged. The good works you do will glorify your Father in heaven. And then he gets to this passage, and we have to put it into context so we understand it. So let's take a look at it as we read and study together. Jesus begins, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite! Exclamation point. That's for emphasis. Probably yelled it. First remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye, not to point it out, but to help remove it. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Both of those are pack animals. They run in packs, groups. Ask and it will, uh, uh, sorry, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he'll give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, or will your Father who is in heaven, give good things to him who asks? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, now this is the golden rule, but Socrates, Buddha, Hillel, they all did it in the negative. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Jesus is the only one with the golden rule that does it in the positive. He says, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, please, you're the spirit of understanding. Lead us into all truth. You commend us to gain wisdom and understanding, wisdom and understanding. And you're the spirit of truth. You come alongside us and you lead us into all truth. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we're here today because, God, we want to know what you have to say. So teach us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat, please. So it begins with the most often quoted verse in America, judge not lest you be judged. And as I said on Tuesday, I heard that on a number of occasions. As a minister and a politician, I hear it often, judge not lest you be judged. Does that mean that there's no right and there's no wrong? Does that mean that whatever is right for you is right for you and whatever is right for me is right for me? Does that mean that there are no absolutes, no moral absolutes? My question would be, do you believe that absolutely? Let's pause for emphasis on that. If you believe that absolutely, that is a moral absolute to you. Do you see the lunacy of it all? Two plus two is four. That's an absolute. I have nothing to drop. Yes, I do. Gravity is an absolute. We don't have to leave it there the whole time. I'll pick it up. <laughs> I just don't think I can, I can pay attention with that sitting there. Compulsive disorder, OCD, but you're actually CDO because it's in alphabetical order. <laughs> so we, we're, we're governed by absolutes. You, you, you can get the world to believe that two plus two equals three, but your buildings will collapse because your mathematics is wrong. Your culture will collapse. We're governed by absolutes, and there are moral absolutes. Now, we're in a world today that is contending for that. We're in a world today where there's secular humanism. This is from the Secular Humanism website, not my own. Secular humanism incorporates the enlightenment principle of individualism, which celebrates emancipating the individual from traditional controls by family, church, and state, increasingly empowering each of us to set the terms of his or her own life. Humanism is compatible with atheism and agnosticism, but being atheist or agnostic does not itself make one a humanist. Nevertheless, humanism is diametrically opposed to state atheism. Um, one writer says, 
Um, one of the differences between Marxist-Leninism, atheists, and humanists is the latter's commitment to human freedom and democracy while stating that the militant atheism of the Soviet Union consistently violated basic human rights. He said that defense of liberty is, a pre- is as precious to the humanists as are the rights of believers. Um, in the minds of its founders as nothing more than a, relig- a religion without God. So secular humanism is a religion disguised as a political movement. It is a religion that removes God and establishes morality apart from an absolute lawgiver. So as a result, whatever you consider to be an absolute can be changed and moved. Situational ethics. What's good for you may not be good for you, and what you believe is right may not be what you believe is right, and everyone gets to believe what they want to believe. My question is, who says that's right? And how do you have human rights, civil rights? Where do they come from? If there is no God, there is no absolute, there is no governing force, if there is not something that's good and something that is evil, then how can you stand to make a a position that this is good? Well, it's the survival of the fittest. It's, it's, It's evolution. Okay. Then I'm going to do hyperbole and I'm going to stretch I'm not here to insult, especially those who have been violated and hurt. But I watched a video of a man defending absolute morals, saying to a student, because 60% of the college population believes in secular humanism or buys into this concept, that you can't legislate morality and then there's no such thing as an absolute moral. And his question is, is rape always wrong? And the student struggles because he knows if he says it's wrong, now he has made a moral stand that something is absolutely wrong, which means there must be an absolute good if there's an absolute evil. And he says, not in every case. You can hear a gasp in the audience. And then the, the, the speaker says, holding to your position, you're honest. Because if we believe in survival of the fittest, wouldn't it necessitate that our DNA would would spread. We would want that to continue to grow and violate somebody else to accomplish that. Now you can see that that would be awful. Where does the structure come from? Where, where does the boundaries come? And this is what we're contending with because secular humanism came out of and understanding it actually came out of the Puritan movement in the Eastern seaboard. And they were so tired of the dogmatic structured church that, that, that had no concept of stretching beyond its borders and became a culture that was so stoic and so stuffy that people broke out of it. And they held to the moral conditions because it was, it was the Puritans and, and it was the Congregationalists that brought us the emancipation of slavery. It was, it was the the Congregationalists that, that brought us child labor laws and, and women's suffrage. So the social movement was important to them, but the dogmas and, and, the, and the stuffiness of the church, they abandoned and it created, as it went this direction, it created the absence of God, but yet a commitment to civility and a commitment to civil rights. But what they're realizing is the further they go down, you can, you can be committed to the environment, but allow 70 million children to be aborted. And one is completely right and the other's wrong. But who says? 
And so this is a moving scale that we struggle with in our culture. And so people can converge on a room and these, these, these philosophies conflict. And there is a right and there is a wrong. And Jesus has laid out what is right. He lays out salt and light. He lays out affecting the culture. He lays out what we're to do as Christians. But then he gives us this verse that, that we struggle with. Judge not lest ye be judged. Or judge not that you be not judged. And we look at that and we say, what do you mean? He's not saying you don't judge. Jesus would stand in judgment. Jesus, Jesus would apply judgment. He would call the, the, the Pharisees to, to, to account. He would say, this is right, this is wrong. Thou shall not. You've heard that it said, thou shall not murder. But I say to you, he adds to the law so that there's a significance to it. So it's not just observing a law, but it's, it's the application of the heart. He's already done that. But this is what he says. He goes into a hyperbole. He goes into to what I consider to be uh, heavenly humor. I mean, it's laughable what he does. You say Jesus doesn't have a sense of humor. This is funny. It really is. I mean, we're going to picture it in a moment. He says, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And they're sitting there going, <clears throat> with the measure we judge, it will be measured back to us. And, judge. and don't judge. When, what? And Jesus, rippling muscles. He's a carpenter. You don't become a carpenter looking like Pee Wee Herman. And he, he's gone into his father's business. He knows wood. And they know he knows. And he looks at him and he says this. He says, why do you look at the speck, the sawdust? Excuse me. You're all looking at me, aren't you? Why do you look at the speck, the sawdust, the chaff, the dry wood, the speck in my eye as I'm trying to see clearly, and I can't because I have an impediment and the eyes are the, the window to the soul, observing truth, light. Why are you observing the impediment to my ability to see you clearly? He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and don't consider the plank, the beam in your own? A beam in your eye. Nobody finds that funny. Imagine a big two by four coming out of my head, right? This big, massive two by four coming out of my head. And he says, how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye. And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. It'd be like looking at Kurt. And he's, he's over here trying to get that thing out of his eye. And I go, hey, let me help you over here. And I go, what? And I knock out. And, I go, oh, and I'm just whacking everybody knocking him over, and I'm trying to get in. As I'm trying to help him, I'm poking his head with this plank coming out of my eye, and he, <laughs> I don't need your help. I Just back off. What? What's wrong? My swath is just nailing everybody, and I'm bloodying everyone because of this plank, this platform. Oh, where are you going with this, Pastor? It's the platform upon which we stand. Got a plank. And Jesus is saying, we're hypocrites. He says, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Not to diagnose the speck, 
Obviously, he's got a speck. He's rubbing his eye. You need to get that speck out. No, he says, you go help him with that speck. Get the plank out to go help him with the speck. The plank is the impediment to you having access to helping him, Rob. Introspection. Your platform, your plank is hindering you from a relationship to have connection to be able to touch what is the most sensitive part of the body, allowing another human being to say, let me help you with that. And you're, you're letting them have a window to your soul to touch and remove something so delicate that could hinder your eyesight. And you're saying, would you help me? It's hyperbole and everyone gets it. They understand it. But as soon as he finishes this idea of the plank and the speck, he then gives this illustration. And they do connect with each other. He says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. These are both pack animals. Dogs, wild dogs, boars, swine, pig, feral, insane, crazy, vicious. And they run in packs. Now, if I had gotten out of my car in Ventura and I'm going to let everyone know about the specks in their eye as I approach them with my plank, my platform of belief, I'll be eviscerated. And what's, what happens? What happens when you're an individual surrounded by a crowd and they're all adversarial? You're like a rat trapped in the corner. And it immediately goes from, from well-intentioned to flesh. And you start attacking them and, and labeling them and throwing out names and you're angry and they insult you and they, they, they get you. Let's reverse that. Let's imagine you're the group and they're the individual. Well, there's strength in numbers. We got a pack here. Let's devour them. There's, we're strong. Let's get them. Onward, Christian soldiers. My, oh, sorry. And you've got your platform, you've got your plank. And you're making no inroads into changing culture. You don't have the intimacy to help that person with that speck. They won't let you anywhere near them because you are dangerous with that plank. And if you want to try to confront, you'll be devoured. That was not the place nor the time. You see, I look at this passage of scripture and it reminds me of Jesus. When do you confront a crowd and when do you stay back? When do you speak and when do you remain silent? It takes a lot of wisdom. I struggled over this passage because I didn't like it. I didn't like it because if I'm going to teach it, I have to own it. 
And the minute I began to read it, I realized how wrong I was. There's a man who I've never met personally. I've read four of his books. He's nationally known, blog, website, everybody knows about him. He's a pastor. And he, he upsets me. And the words he writes are without knowledge, in my estimation, with certain aspects. He does a detriment to what it is God's called me to. And I'm contending with him. He has no idea who I am. He hasn't read any of the books I haven't written. He doesn't know I exist. But I read his things and I contend with the small soapbox I have, which is here on Sundays, basically. I had a video that 800 people watched. And he, he wrote an article recently that says how to live under an unqualified president right after the election. Made me so angry. He spoke of voting for third party And as a pastor, I got it. He's looking for the moral center theme. He's wanting to guide his people through scripture. He's trying to find what is right. I get all that. But the struggle for me comes over here. I'm a politician too. I'm a politician who also happens to be a pastor. And as a politician, I see what he's doing as a pastor is a great hindrance to transforming culture the seven mountains of influence, arts and media, education, politics. <laughs> I get politics. I understand politics. I know the salary, the currency, the commodity of politics. It's winning elections. For him to espouse from his pulpit to vote third party angered me because it's, it's decimating Christian influence. And it makes me upset. And as a pastor on a Sunday, I said from this pulpit, that his decision created a voting block of people that were stupid and worthless to the politician. Worthless in the sense that it doesn't win elections and to a politician there's no currency or salary and we dismiss them. The, The politician doesn't do the bidding of the constituent, they do the bidding of the voter. And if you're irrelevant, we bypass you. It wasn't an insult to their character. It was to their action. It was stupid and worthless. Heavy words. I said that. As a pastor of a church, Brett, Pastor Brett, he came up to me that Sunday. He said, hey, Rob, you got something in your eye. I want to help you get it out. You know, I trust Brett. He can touch my eye anytime he wants. He didn't have a plank, and here's why. Paul wrote in Galatians, he said, brethren, if a man is overtaken in a fault, Rob, You who are spiritual, restore restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. 
Rob, there's a fault with you, but I want to restore you in a spirit of meekness. Meekness, Jesus covered that. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness, we studied that. Meekness is strength under control, a bit in a horse's mouth. You pull to the right, this massive beast goes to the right by the pull of the master, goes to the left by the pull of the master. An enormous beast guided by a small bit of metal. Strength under control. Meekness in a spirit of meekness. The only autobiographical statement in the entirety of scripture that Jesus gave of himself is found in Matthew 11. I'll read it to you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am meek and lowly of heart. You shall find rest for your souls. Strength under control. The other thing about this is that when bread approached me, I was taken aback because I've always been touched by the passage of Scripture in Matthew 22 when Jesus was confronted by a lawyer who sought to trap him. He said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love your neighbor. Excuse me, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. Now we, add a third commandment, couldn't be a better third commandment to negate the previous two than this one, and we all add it. I can't learn to love someone else until I learn to love myself first. We always want to make it about us, don't we? We love ourselves already. No, Pastor, you don't know. I hate me. I just, I just hate me. If you really hated yourself, some people say, I hate myself because I'm ugly. If you really hated yourself, you'd be happy you're ugly. Think about it. It's just a negative way to get attention. And we love ourselves so much that when we're in an argument and someone comes up like Pastor Brett and says, Rob, I know what you intended, but I got to tell you something. You hurt a lot of people yesterday. What? This is what you said. Yeah. That's not what they heard. Well, they need to get hearing aids or something. (laughs) Now, mind you, I'm behind this pulpit. I speak every week, twice a week, sometimes more. My words go out. They have to leave my mouth, enter your ears. What I'm intending to say and what you receive usually at times are two opposite things. The English language is difficult to use, and I don't master it well. I want to show you how you can create cannibalism from a comma. Let's put the first slide up there. Let's eat, Grandma. Now let's take out the comma. One is cannibalism, and the other is children that are hungry waiting for Grandma to finish cooking. Uh, Not she's being cooked. I may have intended to say one thing, 
but my actions did something completely different. I called everyone in the church who voted third party worthless and stupid. I'm sorry, what? What? I didn't hear. Oh, behind you. Oh, yeah, I did. Ouch, thank you. (sighs) Hard enough. But I did. I said worthless and stupid. I, this is what I intended. This is what I did. And in addition, let's go further back. I have never had a personal conversation with this pastor. I don't know what his intentions are. I don't know anything about him. I do know that his words affect me. So for those of you I call worthless and stupid, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I already know you forgive me. I know the heart of this congregation. It wasn't my intention. See, Jesus says, love your neighbors yourself. I want to be judged on my intention, not my actions. And you know why Brett doesn't have a plank in his eye and he can come over to me and remove the speck in mine? Because he judges himself on his actions and he judged me on my intentions. Do you realize how revolutionary that would be? We examine our life by our actions and we judge others on their intentions. I don't know if you ever had a phone call or conversation or sit down with a, a member of the LDS church. I had three this week. I know a lot about the LDS to the point where I have very deep abiding relationships with them. I picked up the phone and I called my friend Bishop Huggins, the pastor of the largest black church in Ventura County. And I called him and I said, I want to have a conversation with you because I'm going to be teaching tomorrow and I got to ask you a question. He said, what is it? I said, you love Jesus. You believe in the Trinity. You believe in the inerrancy of scripture. Yes, I do. And I know you do and you know I do. And he says, yes. I said, I'm baffled. He said, why is that? I said, why is it that the black clergy in America vote in enormous block, almost 90% Democrat every time? I, I just, for the life of me, can't fathom that. And I ask you that because that's part of my plank, my platform. And I don't get you. I already told you, Bishop Huggins, 16% of the population of America is black, but 38% of the abortions are on black children. If Roe v. Wade hadn't been enacted, the black population in America would be 40% right now. 71% of Planned Parenthoods are in the inner city. He goes, Rob, don't think for a minute I'm not pro-life. There's just a hierarchy in the black community. I said, tell me. Tell me. He said, do you remember that pastor in Compton that addressed it? And I said, yes. He said, what did he say? I said, I told him those statistics. And he said, you want to know why Planned Parenthood works in the inner city? I said, yeah. He said, it's a way out. He said, when you white churches who are pro-life want to come down here and help our single mothers who are in generational poverty out, 
We'll let you remove that speck. Those people. Let me ask you a question. I'm looking around the room. It looks pretty white. No offense to my in-law. When's the last conversation you had with a member of the African-American community? Latino community? When's the last conversation you had with the lesbian, gay, transgender? I heard this on Tuesday. I got a gay friend, and we have a good relationship, and I love him. Or I have a gay sister. But I just got to tell you, and then you go into your platform, and then I'm glad you have a gay friend. I'm glad you have a transgender friend. Honestly, between you and me, when is the last time you had a meaningful conversation with them? And do they trust you enough that you've built a relationship that you can go up to the window of their soul and remove the impediment? Do they trust you? Or is that plank, that platform in the way? My point is this. Jesus wants us to infuse and transform culture. He made that very clear. And the further away the election gets, the more visceral it becomes, and the planks and the platforms are what we stand upon. But the civility happens locally. If God intended us to be in this enclave, in this fortress of Christianity, where we throw bombs over the wall, the church would be succeeding. But we have to infuse each level of culture. And how do we do that? When you step into the culture, you gain understanding. Let me share with you. This concept of understanding is of great importance to the Lord. Deuteronomy, this was a commandment to Moses. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord, your God, the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is wise and an understanding people. The psalmist says, my mouth shall speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. Let my cry come before you, O Lord, give me understanding according to your word. Great is our Lord and mighty in power, his understanding is infinite. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a, and a man of understanding will gain wise counsel. Discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Happy is a man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. 
How can you understand somebody you haven't walked with? You've got a plank because you've figured out they're wrong. You know nothing about them. Walk with them. Because I stepped away from this pulpit into this world, I have gained understanding. I know what this community needs in relation to civility. Tuesday night, no decision was going to be changed. If those that sat on the dais understood, they were going to see what the condition of the community was by their willingness to express that. Their decision had been made. That decision was made November 8th. You affect culture by electing officials. People speak, the dais gets wisdom and understanding. And the way you gain understanding is you listen. Some of you say, well, when do you speak and when do you listen? I love this. When Jesus pointed out, don't give what is holy to dogs nor cast your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man there is among you who if his son asks for bread will give him a stone or if he asks for fish will give him a serpent. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good, th- good things to those who ask? Luke says, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And I say this because when do you speak? When do you remain silent? When do you walk with somebody? When, when, when? When is it dogs and swine? When is it people? When is it my plank? When is it your speck? How do we build community? How do we do this? Jesus stood before the governor. This is the God of the universe. Jesus stood before the governor of Pilate, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, they're all attacking him. The scripture says, He said nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? The scripture says, but Jesus answered him, not one word. The governor marveled greatly. Mark 15, immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered and said to him, it is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered them nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing. And Pilate marveled. Brought before Herod, after Pilate. It's interesting. He says, Herod really wanted to meet Jesus. He had many questions he wanted to ask him. Luke 23, then he questioned him with many words, but Jesus didn't even answer Herod. The chief priests and the scribes stood vehemently accusing him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him and rayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with one another. They attacked him. Jesus was a lamb silent to the slaughter. You know, do you think that God could have wiped him out? 
Had I gotten out of that car in Ventura, I can tell you exactly. The Bible says that the spirit lusts after the flesh, the flesh lusts after the spirit. I would have gotten out of that car. I would have had good intentions and I would have gone from zero to a hot cup of flesh spilling out on everybody. When somebody cuts you off on the freeway, it's not like, oh, praise the Lord. I just hope they get to where they're going. You, you are putting yourself in a place where you will not succeed. And Jesus, they're mocking him. They're ridiculing him. They're putting a robe on him. They're spitting on him. He's not opening his mouth. There are times you remain silent. It's not about you. It's not about winning the argument. You are trying to get access to their, the window of their soul to remove that speck. They want to be able to trust you to open up. The swines and the dogs will trample all of that understanding. They're going to trample it. There's a time to speak and a time to remain silent. When do you do this? How do you know? Real simple, ask. Ask. Seek. Knock. Lord, is it me? Is it my plank? Is it their speck? God, how do I access the window to their soul? Lord, would you give me understanding? Would you let me endeavor with them? Would you open a door that I would never walk through? Would you give me courage to step into the culture? Would you give me friendship with people that are of a different platform, plank? Would you let me gain understanding to build a community that they would open their eye to me that I could help them see more clearly? How all of you, the scripture says, Jesus speaking to his disciples, you being evil. Whoa. In my flesh, that is in me, dwells no good thing. Apart from Christ, Rob McCoy is awful. You being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding to those who ask? the most precious relationship on the face of the earth, even as evil human beings, we protect our wife and our kids as a father. You mess with my kids or my wife, you will be picking up your teeth with your broken arm. I don't care what platform I stand on. Don't mess with my family. Me being evil, knowing how to give good gifts, and they annoy you after a while. Please, dad, please, dad, can I have, can I have, I want a cookie, I want a cookie, I want a cookie, I want a cookie, I want a cookie. I have five kids. Do you know how many countries Michelle and I could have traveled to visit in these last 25 years? Have we not poured into these sinkholes? And it's always something, you know? And still when they ask, we give. And they ask again and we give. And we being evil know how to give good gifts. And what he's saying is this is the most precious relationship on earth. You understand that. Now, if you really want to gain understanding and have access to the window of the soul of people I love that are created in my image, why don't you ask me? Because I'm a heavenly father who does good. And I'll give you understanding and wisdom to be able to touch their lives deeply and give them clarity so they can see me. But your plank is getting in the way, your platform 
I'm going to close with this last thing. King David was confronted by Nathan after David had committed adultery and murder. And Nathan comes to him and David thought it was a secret. There's no secrets in a palace. And Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and tells him a story about a poor man who had a, a little lamb that he had raised and become a family pet. It was like a daughter to him and they fed him at the table and it was just so sweet. And a rich man had many flocks and many herds and the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished. And so the traveler comes to the rich man and he goes to prepare food for him, but he refused to take from his own flock and herd to prepare for the wayfaring man. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And as Nathan's telling David the story, David just just unleashes and he says, David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. He said, as the Lord lives, that man has to be put to death. Now, there's no Levitical law to put someone to death for killing a lamb. There is for adultery and there is for murder, David. And as soon as he says this, Nathan goes, you the man. David's like, you know why we get so angry? Because we're not looking at our lives. We're not looking at the plank. We're keeping people at bay. We don't want to be with those people. We don't want to understand those people. So our plank keeps them away. We get angry. The nation divides. There came, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of its roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, meaning Jesus, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist." The the picture is he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. His words will change the nation. The The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a child shall lead them. I used this illustration once before. I'm going to do it again because it merits revisiting. I'm going to show you a picture. You guys have it? Um, what's the guy's name? Uh, creation guy? No, the other guy. Ken Hoven. He's standing on top of an atheist monument in this Florida county. And the atheists had put this monument next to the Ten Commandments monument. And they were declaring atheism in this county equal with the Ten Commandments. Ken Hovind stands on top of it and he says, thank you for giving me a pedestal to proclaim the living God. Not a small contention arose. Let's go to the next one. This is an atheist letting this pastor know how he feels. Does he look happy? Do his actions look tender and kind? This atheist's name's Rob Squires and he's pointing at this pastor and he's letting him know. Let's go to the next one. So the president of the Atheist Society stands up on the Ten Commandments and does what Ken Hovind did. 
He says, thank you for giving me a pedestal in which to declare God is dead and doesn't exist and never did. Let's go back to the second slide. Gain understanding. Hello? Look at me. Gain understanding. I happen to know that man. I went to school with him in high school. He went to the Citadel. Fourth generation Citadel graduate down the line in his family. His father, Navy SEAL. He served in the United States Marine Corps. Actually, very conservative. His name's Rob Squires. I know his sister, Gretchen. He was a year ahead of me, and Gretchen was two years ahead of me. Strong Navy family. Moral, church-going. Rob came home after, after at lunch one day, came through the back gate of his house, heard gunshots, and the back fence splintered. His father chased his mother through the house and shot her and then shot himself, murder-suicide. He was the first to find the bodies. Look into his eyes. Makes it a little different, doesn't it? That's just not a picture in a paper. Now is somebody you can connect with. Why don't you walk with someone like that? Gain understanding. Or you can just go and parade your pearl in front of swine and have everyone yell at each other. Or build a relationship and transform a community. You see, the more we change the source locally, the better off it turns out nationally. That is what we're experiencing now is the absence of what we haven't been doing here. Everyone in this room, step out of your comfort zone and go gain understanding. We have a community to reach. Try to build a relationship where they allow you to come in and remove that speck because your plank hasn't knocked them over and they trust you. Bishop Huggins, trust me. Many in the Mormon community trust me. I've built those relationships. Do the same. And watch what God does to our community. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. But more importantly, Lord, thank you for your understanding. We gain wisdom and we gain understanding. And this day we come to say thank you, that you are the spirit of truth. You give us the ability to judge, but judge in such a way that we are set free to have access to the window of the soul of the individual that has the impediment, that the plank of our platform hasn't knocked them over. And now we have the ability to transform a culture because we love them. We love them. Lord, how can we love anyone we haven't spent time with? How can we understand someone we don't talk to? What hinders us from that? Is it our platform? Is it the plank? God, help us to gain understanding that the Rob Squires of the world would be touched, not incited at a gathering of dogs and swine, but in the home of someone who loves him, who would reach him and touch him. Help us to be those people, Lord. Thank you for your word. 
We praise you. We thank you this day in Jesus' name. Amen.